when I, when I think of uh, ministry. So, for instance, my model for ministry was um, 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 the movie The Leap of Faith, Steve Martin. Mm-hmm. Um, I came in ministry in 92. That movie hit about 90, 89, 90. And, and I always said in my mind, like, man, if I was going to be a minister, it'd be like uh, uh, Jeremiah, the, the preacher in that movie. He was like charismatic, had a white, shiny suit, and and hit a town, and the people loved him. All right? The difference in the two of us is I would try to, uh, uh, I would I would try not to play the folk, you know, for some cash, but really try to, like, help them. That would be the difference. Welcome. This is the Sacred Speaks. I'm your host, John Price. I'm going to ask you something. Can we just agree that I'm going to be excited to do every one of these episodes? <laughs> I, I I find myself saying, oh, I'm really excited to bring this one to you. Oh, I'm really excited to bring all of them to you. Um, today's participant Pastor Rudy Rasmus, I actually saw him the first time about two years ago. Uh, we were both attending a lecture by um, by a man who actually participated in this podcast, episode five, the Reverend Pittman McGeehy, Jungian analyst and Episcopalian priest. I looked over and I, <laughs> I thought, I got to meet this guy. I, I walked over and I just shook his hand and I met he and Juanita, and I knew I, our paths would cross again, and I'm happy they did. And I'm happy it was in this format. So let me let me address a couple of notes. I'm going to read you Rudy's bio and then uh, a story. So the music for this episode is from one of my all-time favorites, Bad, Bad, Not Good. And you can get them at badbadnotgood.com. And on the uh, wherever you get this podcast, you can also look underneath the bio section. I'll have some links so you can get the song that I'm playing, Confessions. I'll play the full song at the very end of the episode. You heard a little snippet at the beginning. The theme music for the podcast is from Modern Nations. You can reach them at modernnationsmusic.com. And for uh, Rudy, Pastor Rudy, P-A-S-T-O-R-R-U-D-Y dot net. Check out his stuff. He's got a lot of good stuff online, and uh, you'll get to know him, and I'm sure you'll love him like I do. I, I guess what I, what I did in preparation for this, I read Rudy's book, Touch, and it came out in 2007. He's got three books. 
I haven't read the other two. I will, but I, I really enjoyed Touch. And um, it's hard not to not only love him, but just get that love has been such a primary factor for who he is and what he does. So I'll read you this real quick. Rudy Rasmus is a pastor, author, and humanitarian with a passion for outreach to the world's most challenged communities. From Rudy's previous life of owning and operating a, quote, borderline bordello, end quote, today he co-pastors the St. John's Church in, in downtown Houston with his wife Juanita, a church that began with nine existing members in 1992. St. John's has grown to thousands where every week people of every social and economic background share the same pew. He attributes the success of the church to a compassionate group of people who've embraced the vision of tearing down the walls of classism, sexism, and racism, and building bridges of unconditional love, universal recovery, and unprecedented hope. Thanks to generous support from a collaboration of government agencies and a significant donation from Tina, Beyonce, and Solange Knowles, the St. John's downtown campus includes the Knowles Temenosa Apartments, a 43-unit single-room occupancy development designed to provide permanent living accommodations for formerly homeless women and men. Temenos CDC portfolio also includes an 80-unit apartment community to meet the growing needs for permanent supportive housing for the previously homeless in Houston, Texas, and a 15-unit apartment project for chronic inebriates and the most vulnerable homeless individuals in Houston community. Pastor Rudy and Juanita founded the Bread of Life, Inc., a not-for-profit corporation in December of 1992 and began serving 500 meals per day to the homeless in the sanctuary at St. John's. Years later, the Bread of Life has changed the landscape of downtown Houston, providing an array of services to homeless men and women. The project also distributes over nine tons of fresh produce weekly to hungry families. St. John's is one of the few faith communities in the U.S. providing HIV-AIDS testing to churchgoers on Sundays through the innovative, quote, Get Tested project. For many years, Pastor Rudy has coordinated domestic and global anti-hunger initiatives in conjunction with Beyonce's concert tours and travels extensively developing and supporting programs around the world for people experiencing poverty. Today, with a focus on social impact investing, the Bread of Life owns and operates EcoLife Employment, LLC, a digital employment and staffing agency for men and women with troubled past lives, and the amazing KMAZ 102.5 FM radio station. Rudy and Juanita have been married for 32 years and are proud parents of two outstanding daughters, Morgan and Ryan, a phenomenal son-in-law, Hamilton, and an amazing grandson. And it's good to introduce you to him. I'm going to introduce you to somebody else right now. This is, uh, I'm going to read from Rudy's book. Excuse me, I'm going to read from Rudy's book. And introduce you to a man that we uh, that we talked about. It's a couple of pages of text, but it's, a, it's worth it. A touching story, Stan fills. Early on a cold September morning, Stan was sleeping on a sidewalk in the front of the Star of Hope Mission in Houston. A guy sleeping next to him woke up and asked Stan, "What do you think the rockets are going to do today?" This seemingly insignificant comment shook Stan. He remembered. I was 27 years old, sleeping on the street. My wife had left me, because, left me because I'd ruined my life with drugs and alcohol, and all the guys sleeping next to me in the same condition I was in could think of was a basketball team. I started crying at the hopelessness of my life. I lost it that day. Another homeless man saw Stan crying. He told him, man, it gets better. Go with me to a church where we can get a meal. We'll sit through a Cocaine Anonymous meeting, and they'll feed us. The two men walked to St. John's. Stan told a friend, my whole life changed that day. 
when I came to the door of the CA meeting. A man met me at the door. He was a little guy, but he gave me a big hug. I was shocked because I hadn't had a bath in a week and I stank. I couldn't imagine anybody getting near me, much less hugging me in a warm, strong embrace. That man was Rudy Rasmus. As he sat in the CA meeting that day, Stan heard things about addiction that he'd never heard before. Suddenly, things started making sense. He told the friend after the meeting, I talked to two men who led the meeting, and they helped me get into treatment only a few days later. As soon as I got out of treatment, I got back to St. John's as quickly as possible. I talked to Rudy, and he said something that blew me away. He told me that he saw tremendous potential in me. I could hardly believe it. I dropped out of school in the eighth grade, and I couldn't read very well. I'd lived my life in shame, so I hadn't seen any potential in myself. As Stan got more involved in the St. John's recovery ministry, an amazing thing happened. He realized that God had given him a gift to help hurting people. I met with Stan regularly, and we developed a really close relationship. We weren't like brothers. We were brothers. Soon he was leading a CA meeting, the very meeting he came to the first day when he came, came in from the slabs. He often tells people, once you realize your gifts, you'll find your purpose. And when you know your purpose, you can fulfill your destiny. My gift is to help people in pain. And my purpose is to serve people in our community so that they can find hope and healing. My destiny is to make a difference in the lives of people. And it all started with a hug at the door of St. John's. Someone at the church tutored Stan. And he passed his high school equivalency exam the first time he took it. His thirst for knowledge led him to enroll in the University of Houston in a program on drug addiction counseling. While he was attending college, I called him with a unique opportunity that fit perfectly. Because so many street people came to St. John's, the city health department wanted to start a pilot program at the church to test homeless people for HIV and syphilis. Stan was God's man to run that program. The health department set quotas for testing, and Stan exceeded those goals by double or triple People would leave after the church service on a Sunday morning and walk into the clinic at the church for testing. It was a unique situation. In his testing, Stan found a number of people who needed medical care or drug treatment, but he faced a dilemma. Reputable facilities had long waiting lists, and the ones that had spots available often weren't competent. Either way, the people who needed help weren't getting it. Stan told me it tore me up that I couldn't help them. God put it on Stan's heart to build a transitional housing unit for those people who needed care. For this to happen, Stan would have to take a leap of faith. He left the staff of St. John's and started his own ministry, called A Caring Safe Place. In the last few years, God's been doing amazing work in and through Stan's life. His ministry is flourishing, and he just opened a multi-million dollar facility for men infected with HIV. During this time, he graduated from the University of Houston in Addiction Studies, in addition, he received his associate's degree from the College of Biblical Studies, with its affiliate, which is affiliated with Dallas Theological Seminary. And recently, he earned a bachelor's degree in leadership with a 3.5 grade point average. Tremendous potential. Stan couldn't see it in himself that day as a hopeless, homeless man. Came in off the slab in a, into a CA meeting at St. John's. But his God-given ability only needed to be noticed and nourished with love and truth for it to become a reality. Stan tells people, if anybody who comes to St. John wants to know where their money is going, tell them to look at me. If they're wondering if the church is helping anyone, they can talk to me, like countless others. I'm a product of the mission statement, the love and the truth that St. John's is all about. Rudy included the story of Stan in his book, and we referenced it in the conversation, so I wanted you to have the story so you knew what we were talking about. I was really, speaking of touch, I was really touched by 
by that story about Stan. Now, this was written in 2007, so there's a lot of things that have happened between now and then that um, we don't really talk about, but uh, you'll get it. You'll hear it later. I think that does it. I'm excited to bring you Rudy, and I'll leave it there. I'm wondering where where the story begins for you. I mean, do you typically begin with a narrative, your personal narrative? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Let's start there. Okay. You know, I, uh, I grew up in Houston um, in a um, sort of a older black neighborhood, Washington Avenue, Shepherd Drive. Yeah. Um, sort of post-World War One. Uh, community, uh, in interesting place, but uh, it was a um, it was a hard place, but nobody knew it. It was one of those. It was kind of a hard neighborhood, but there was so much community mm-hmm. that the uh, um, that all of the kids really felt uh, loved, even though even if they weren't. Um, I came came up in a time uh, here in Houston drinking from a um, um, colored only water fountain until I was twelve. Um, so, so that shaped a lot of of uh, my perspectives later. But it also, um, I think, it created the um, uh, created the the revolutionary uh-huh. uh, even as a child. It really did. My uh, my aunt, of whom we'll talk about today, because she was. Um, I'm ready to meet her. Yeah, man. She's <laughs> uh, um, Hetty Mae Allen was her name. Yeah. Um, she was about four ten, and uh, and I tell people she was a cross between uh, Mother Teresa and Al Capone, like, <laughs> <laughs> right in the middle. And uh, so she was a sweet lady, um, but but she uh, helped me understand. Um, race, class, gender, and culture. Yeah, she was sort of my griot uh, as a as a kid. I hung out with her a lot. Mm. Uh, interestingly enough, um, she also um, was in a uh, an extremely abusive relationship uh, that she um, uh, literally um, mediated with Jesus. So she, you know, her husband, my uncle, was uh, violent and and physically abusive, verbally abusive, uh, emotionally abusive. Uh, and she called him. She countered all of that by calling him her darling dear. I'm thinking, like, what the hell? Yeah, yeah. How you how you how you gonna call this cat your darling dear? And he is shooting his 30 caliber deer rifles uh, towards you in the house to terrify you. He is hiding uh, dead mice in the freezer to terrify you. I'm thinking, so So what she really uh, did for me was um, uh, demonstrated what unconditional love looked like. Yeah, and, and I was... As I was reading your book, it was a. Uh, I had that question, you know, about 
Well, that that doesn't jive very well yeah. in a lot of ways. Like, how does... I don't I'm just... I, I guess... I, I have two points of entry there. I mean, one, I, and we can revisit this, but I'm wondering what it was like for a boy who was seeing the differences and where you could drink from the fountain and where you couldn't. Mm-hmm. And then also this core conflict on kind of where love and violence collide and what that meant to you and how she explained that. You know, um, <clears throat> she didn't really explain it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what she would do would uh, demonstrate um, what love did. You know, nah, sort of how how love responded to just about any situation. So she she owned a little grocery store in that same neighborhood, not too far from here. And it was called Allen's Food Market. I actually remember when they were building the store. Uh, they started building it around 1960. I was about four. Um, they opened it around 62, uh, which means I would have been six. Mm-hmm. And I started hanging out there from six, six years old on. Uh, by the time I was nine years old, I was uh, able to stand in a chair and run the cash register. I was also her driver. I didn't, I didn't mention that. <laughs> by the time I was 10 sight. years old, I was her driver because she, um, she had you know, real anxieties around driving. Yeah. So uh, as soon as I could uh, sit on my trumpet case to get tall enough in the seat, uh, I was literally driving her around the city at 10, 11 years old. It's nuts, all right? She said, anybody but me, any, any, you know, but herself. So, so, but this grocery store, man, was a, um, was a place where the whole world converged. Uh, drunk people, um, uh, maids, and, maids and butlers, uh, uh, postman school teachers, laborers, um, you know, street folk, uh, professionals, lawyers, um, Everybody kind of converged in this little grocery store in this neighborhood. And and here, here's the key. Man, I watched her treat every person that came through the door with the same equality. Yeah, it was, it was pretty amazing. Yeah, what a lesson in uh, relationship. Oh, man. I mean, she, she, uh, now I remember, and then she would, um, she would have to go home to, this unknown. So depending on how he was doing that day, um, ultimately, uh, I discovered it was probably alcohol poisoning, uh, that really made him, drove him mad. Mm. Uh, but, but yeah, it was, she was, uh, she was something else, man. I can tell she meant a lot. Yeah. I think when, when I, uh, when I think about the, uh, um, the impact. Um, I used to always question her faith uh, because I would always wonder, so what kind of, who is this Jesus that would call you back into that every evening? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm saying it was crazy to me, you know, cause you know, I, I was thinking, dude, this dude needs whacking, mm-hmm. you know? Um, as a matter of fact, when I got older uh, and, and heard of, one of the beatings he had literally uh, uh, given her in the street uh, in front of their house. I actually drove uh, to Houston 
too whack his ass. But um, um, she asked me to let him live. Um, but I think um, <clears throat> I think think back on on how um, how all of that kind of came together uh, around uh, around a perspective of love. Uh, when I was about four or five, um, he beat her one evening right up to our screen door. I lived uh, three doors down from her, my mom and dad and I. My dad was her brother, who she raised as a, as her son. Three doors down, he beat her all the way down the street. She ran up to our screen door and he beat her at the screen door before she could come in to escape while I stood on the other side. And and um, and I, I witnessed it, I experienced it, uh, it traumatized me. Um, but I think what baffled me was even after that, she still called him her darling dear. <laughs> I said, this cat ain't a darling and he's not a deer, you know, but, um, but it was her, uh, version of, of unconditional love, uh, that she literally stuck to, uh, that was, that was her expression of unconditional love and her willingness to love the most extremely violent person in her life, uh, was her expression of her Christianity. That's like some Gandhi stuff right there. Yeah, of which I didn't want to have anything to do with. Yeah. No, nothing to do. I didn't want anything to do with a faith, a religion uh, that would call you back into an ass whooping damn near every day. How no. old were you at that point? Um, well, that beating was about five when I witnessed <laughs> that one. Um, I would, I would literally sense from that point forward sense that it was continuing um but she uh she worked very very hard at uh concealing that mm. she did but but i would say uh, a lot of that a lot of those experiences shaped how i uh um i think i think in a funny sort of way uh those experiences were were shaping a form of compassion for me uh early on um, yeah, yeah. I th I think I, I determined that people should be treated differently. Is it, how do you define that compassion? Um, you know, when I think when I think compassion, um, I, I think I think uh, accepting um, the person in front of me um, without um, uh, conditions literally accepting their their total embodiment their their personhood whatever that expression is mm -hmm. um and leaning forward so compassion for me is literally the act of leaning forward versus uh withdrawing yeah yeah so so it's uh, it's both uh physical uh and it's uh mental for me i think Think you know empathy is just mental for me. Compassion uh, has to engage uh, the body in some some hmm. way. 
Yeah, well, that's good. When we met downstairs, the second time we've ever met, the first time was two years ago. Or something. Yeah. Um, you were giving hugs, and I appreciate that because I'm a hugger. Yeah. So it's good to lean into you. Scares the shit out of people. <laughs> I just appreciate it. <laughs> but but, uh, but I learned a lot. Do you, do you sense a lot that? Does yeah. it scare people? Oh, yeah, man. I, I learned a lot touching. <laughs> I learned a lot touching people. Yeah. You, you know what, what happened for me? Um, um, I have this um, this crazy discernment, okay? And and uh, and it literally developed out of childhood trauma. You know, so um, uh, there there was there were situations uh, around my house, uh, and and when. When one of your parents is still alive, there's certain things you just can't talk about in detail. But I'll say, uh, I would know. Uh, I would know how the evening was going to go when I touched the back doorknob. I could touch the back doorknob, crack the door open just a little, and know Feel it. this is going to be a day. This going to mm-hmm. be a. It's going to be a long evening. So, so from that. I began to uh, uh, to literally uh, hone this gift of seeing and knowing. So, so as a child, now at sixty-two, um, I see and know immediately. Fact from fiction, you know, real from from a uh, a recording. Um, um, truth from lies. And I uh, I see the person. I see the, you know, I yeah. see who's there. I think that's what was actually been been most uh, beneficial to the work I've done, uh, especially in the homeless community uh, here in in Houston. So you know, I meet people. Uh, I don't need like a day, three weeks, or a, uh, six months to get to know that person. Mm. I know that person immediately. You know and. And in a funny sort of way, I think people know that I know them immediately too. So it's a short runway. We just, yeah, man, <laughs> we connected. So, so thousands of people later, you know, people feel as though they know me really well because I know them really well. Yeah, they feel as you see them, they feel seen, mm-hmm. and that's what glues you together. Yeah, because you know, people go through life, man, really never being seen. Yeah invisible even by themselves even by themselves yeah right that's in, that's uh i don't a previous participant jeff kripal i referenced him earlier yeah he'd written a lot about how trauma tends to oh, the, the idea is that trauma early on in life kind of opens you up to things that yeah you wouldn't otherwise know yeah i i think uh i think the trauma was a gift hmm. Yeah, I I, uh, I used to think, like, damn, my life. But uh, thirty years of therapy later, I'm I'm extremely self aware, man, and I realized today that uh, that man that you know those those traumatic uh, encounters and and scenes were all part of the education. I got a PhD in trauma. All right, yeah. doctor. Yeah, man. So yeah, it's it's funny. I, th- I thought of it. You referenced um, you referenced a couple of some of my favorite quotes in your book, and one of them was about a attachment. 
and trauma in uh, Ukraine in orphanages. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, I I work a lot and have worked a lot with orphans and people who adopt. And of course, it's trauma work. Yeah, man. And what they what they call it the, the technically and is earned secure. Earned secure. Yeah, it's attachment. So when you have a, a an an insecure attachment, which is either anxious or ambivalent, when somebody's kind of worked on it or had healthy relationships, right? What they call that as earned secure. Wow. Yeah. So in the book, I, I called uh, I referenced it as a failure to thrive. Yes. That that uh, that occurred out of uh, literally not being touched. Yes. You know, and um, uh, that you know when we th- when we think about haptics and the science around touch. And how they're, you know, all of these these nerve endings literally uh, terminate in your fingertips, mm-hmm. and and how those transfer uh, something that science hadn't been able to duplicate. Um, and we think about these uh, these babies who literally would lie there for days without a human interacting with them in a physical way. Man, I know I know adult humans who are in that same same predicament. I know a lot of them. Hmm. Yeah, I think my, one of my mentors, Karen Purvis, is a, she worked in this community. Yeah. She cr- created trust-based relational interventions huh. with a, a man named David Cross. Um, both developmental psychologists, David is a, in the statistician world. And um, a, lot of, a lot of what I would learn when I was studying all this attachment work is that well, one one quote that she gave me many years ago, she said the worst sound she's ever heard in her entire life was walking into an orphanage in the Ukraine, and it was silence. It's 200 babies. Silent, and they were all quiet. Quiet. They lost their voice. They lost their voice. She said you'd, you'd lose your voice. A baby will lose its voice after about two months. And what they had is a shortage of caregivers and abundance of babies. So these people walk around throwing you know bottles and changing diapers, and that's all they get. So they're not getting the looks and they're not right. getting the feels and they're not getting all that wow. kind of reciprocity. You know, I see you, I hear you, I'm right. with you, I respond to you. And they just eventually learn that the thing that helps me get from the environment what I need is my voice. And when it's not responded to, I just don't use it any longer. Right. That's when you see those kids with really vacant stares that just kind of, there's no way to connect with other people and it takes a kind of person like you who sees through all that and is willing to do the work and nourish and nurture and i you said it a lot in the book you were just talking about the time that it takes that Mm -hmm. you're just willing to yeah i mean you talked once about the guy that growled at you yeah and you kept you kept sticking your hand out (laughs) yeah man yeah and i've had a lot of guys growl at me over these years you know especially down in downtown Houston, <clears throat> you, you think um, uh, when people have nowhere else to go yeah. in this town, the uh, sort of the center of gravity is downtown Houston. And so, I, you know, I've encountered a lot of folk with uh, uh, who've experienced some deep, dark trauma. But when I, when I meet them, you know, I have had this like 26 year uh, uh, encounter with with some of the most amazing folk on the planet 
who have survived uh, probably unimaginable crap uh, along the way. And, and, um, and, and I think my early, uh, my early gift of trauma was so that when I uh, finally encountered my life's purpose, that I wouldn't have a whole lot of uh, uh, study to have to do. Mm-hmm. I would immediately know. Kind of, kind of interesting. Well, yeah, you say that the knowing, that's kind of not, it's not really the the doing. That's just the kind of yeah, man. You just it's, get it. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if you can be taught this. Yeah. Even though, <clears throat> excuse me. Even though I have, um, you know, when my daughters were young, um, I, uh, I would, I would encourage them to trust what they saw. When they looked in a person's eyes, yeah. Uh, I say most of the time we uh, uh, we negotiate what we see. Uh, we we look at a person, and we say we say to ourselves, "Damn, it can't be like that." So let me make a better story for this person. Instead of embracing exactly what you see, and I, I would tell them, uh, and they'll, they'll tell you right now, uh, I would tell them in the first thirty seconds of a human encounter you're going to have the purest encounter. After 30 seconds, a person is going to instinctively begin to adapt to your expectation. Oh, you hit on gold with that word right there. Cause I got to tell you, I got to get your book out for a second. I know that we're kind of going all over the place, yeah. but I want to go to this for a second. Then I want to go back in time a you little bit it. into, uh, um, where is it? Expectation is a, premeditated resentment. <laughs> you got it, man. I don't need to look. <laughs> Say yeah. it again. An expectation is a premeditated resentment. Man, I sat just looking at that. Yeah, man. I mean, those four words that I underlined, I wrote it down. <laughs> right. I, 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 yeah. I did everything I could. I've said it to seven <laughs> patients that I work with over right. the past two days. Right. I mean, I right. love that line. Because it's real, you know. Any any time, I uh, and I, I meet you, and I'm expecting you to respond in a certain way. That really makes me comfortable. Yeah, I'm really setting you up to resent you at some later point. I th- you and that's that's the kicker right there. Yeah. Is it it that makes me comfortable? Trying to set the situation up so that I feel comfortable. Right. And 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 what that means is that if I'm judging somebody. And I'm keeping my distance. That's me trying to be comfortable. Exactly. To be in relationship with you makes me uncomfortable. So to deal with the discomfort, I back right. up. That's right. Not lean in. That's right. Man, yeah, that I I, I look for nuggets, and that's a nugget, that's a little forward nugget, as far as I'm concerned. Man. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, so uh, I'm a I'm a I'm a curious individual, yeah. and I, I want to know. Uh, I know you're working on a PhD, but I want to know mm-hmm. about this PhD in trauma. Yeah, actually, it's a a D-man, a, a doctorate in ministry. Oh, got it. Okay. Yeah, and um, <coughs> uh, this. So th- I've waited a while to kind of start this work, and and I guess the timing was really good. Mm-hmm. Almost immediately, I knew. Uh, so so I'm a, I'm a curious guy, and and my curiosity, uh, I think has always been there, which is why, you know, I've been, um, 
Buddhist and Muslim and agnostic and ultimately Christian, you know, so, um, uh, which means, uh, you know, I'm actually all of those all at the same time, <laughs> all the time, you know, you know, sometimes I'm agnostic and sometimes I'm Buddhist and sometimes I'm, I'm Muslim and, and, and I just have a Christian expression yeah. around it. I tell people all the time, man, if most of my church people really knew what I was thinking most of the time, uh, <laughs> I'd have an empty room on Sunday morning. They, they have too many expectations. Too many expectations, got. you know. But the, but the funny thing is, I tell them all the time, look, you know, look, y'all, don't follow me. You just come out and hang out with me, you know, and you'll be you'll be safe, all right? You follow me. We are all, yeah, yeah, we're all going to be in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I ain't, I ain't, I'm not very messianic, but um, uh, it would have served me better if I hadn't been. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, it wouldn't have served me better. I would have been able to make more, um, more personal uh, strides. Say, say more about that. You know, um, religion <clears throat> is a powerful, uh, powerful drug, and um, and because I uh, have been so critical of it for so much of my life, I didn't actually come to this uh, uh, to this place uh, of of. Um, of commitment to this faith until I was like 34. So, um, so most of the, most of my life, I was very critical of, of Christians and Christian leaders. So, so ultimately I, I ended up with a, um, um, you know, uh, with some judgments around Christian leadership, which, which literally forced me to be a different cat. Once I became a Christian leader, and I didn't have a choice. I had to be different. But if I hadn't had those judgments, I probably could have been rich. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, charismatic guy like yourself. Yeah, yeah, man, I could have been rich, man. I could have been a rich preacher. <laughs> Shit, instead of driving some old hoopty, you know what I mean? <laughs> but yeah, my, my uh, you know, at ultimate, I try not to be hypocritical. So, you know, I couldn't like come to the faith and, and, and pimp. Well, that, you're you're said it right there. The other line that I love is "Preaching ain't pippin." Preaching ain't pippin. <laughs> no, you can't. That's you know, those are two incongruent concepts. Yeah, yeah. But but I said that all to say, um, my uh, uh, my angst with um, with religion ongoing uh, really brought me to a place where I wanted to to look at a, a generation who is uh, demonstrating uh, the angst with their departure. My generation didn't demonstrate with departure. You know, I'm, I'm a part of what, what they would call the boomer generation. And boomers uh, always negotiated this um, um, uh, prosperity uh, relationship with, uh, with God. So, so boomers came uh, into being at a time where uh, there was a negotiation. If you do X, then you'll receive Y. Yeah. And ultimately experience Z. Mm. You know, so that X plus that Y with that ultimate experience of Z was all part of the religious formula uh, when I was uh, ultimately like coming into uh, this faith, but I'm thinking, man, 
um, it's something kind of flawed about uh, a negotiation. Um, you know, here's, here's, here's a challenge. Um, you damn near can't unknow something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Once you know it, uh, you know, unless you are hit in the head, you go into a coma, you know, you develop Alzheimer's or some shit like that, you're going to come back and you, you're not going to forget right. something you know. So my my uh, religious sojourn took me through some places where I just experienced some realities that I couldn't experience. So ultimately, man, I'm, I'm like, man, that, that don't make no sense. So what I couldn't do was was uh, promote a platform that wasn't couched in what I considered a spiritual reality. Mm. So, so, um, so a deal, a a a, a, a deal, a, a prosperity deal with the, my higher power um, was incongruent with uh, with what I ultimately knew as the the intent of a higher power. In essence, if I want to make money, I need to hustle. You know, if I wanted to make something else like um, uh, a peaceful existence, I needed a relationship with a peaceful power. The, uh, the other, when you were saying that equation earlier, I was thinking about how the opposite is true. You know, that if, if things are bad that are happening, you're not doing it right. Hmm. And, and you know that, and I, I've talked to a couple of people on this, you know, experiment, this podcast that, um, you know, when their kids were feeling a lot of shame because somebody would get sick or somebody would, you know, have some trauma. And because of that reward-based theology, you're, you know, the opposite's true. And you're saying like, well, you're to blame because of the, you know, you didn't do enough. You didn't, uh, you know, you, there's so much anxiety in kids even about taking responsibility for things that, uh, you know, medical issues and all kinds of other things that like, well, they're going to, they're going to be, they're not going to be right with God if they don't, if they have that happening, happening to them because they messed up somehow. Yeah. You know, I think, I think in, in therapy though, one of the, one of the benefits of therapy is ultimately putting a, a title on your, on your, uh, neurosis. <laughs> Let's contain it somehow. Contain sure. it. So, so like years ago, I discovered through therapy that I was a dissociative. Mm-hmm. You know, and and it was a uh, um, sort of a selective ability to dissociate, which uh, which ultimately kept me uh, uh, relatively balanced. Sure did. Yeah. You know, so. So in that, I, I discovered that, like, damn, you know, uh, as a kid, I ain't always feel all that stuff. Right. I ain't feel guilty. Um, I, I didn't feel like remorse when adults were acting damn fools uh, or going through shit. I said, hey, those adults created that for themselves. That was really how I made a uh, fidelity decision. Uh, my dad was a, a serial adulterer, right? He had multiple you know, multiple female uh, partners along with my mom, his mm-hmm. wife, um, and would take me on, on what he would call uh, the run. 
He said, man, let's, let's take a run. And I would get in the car with him. And he would literally go go visit folk, you know, go visit women. And and I'm I'm thinking like eight, nine years old. I'm like, man, this something about this ain't exactly right. Hmm. You know. Um and I made a decision at, at that age that if I ever got married, this is one thing I would not do. I would not get married to avoid having to confront how this uh, basically does the human condition. So when I ultimately got married at 28 years old, I had made a decision already to, uh, uh, to be faithful. And there's more to that story. Oh yeah. There's always more. (laughs) Well, let's, let's go, let's tend to that a little bit if you, if you will, like let's, let's, um, Cause you're you're talking about all these things where you're at five, six, seven, eight. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a lifetime and times ten, before ten. Before ten. I mean, m- most. And I don't know statistically, but there are a majority of people who've not experienced that kind of experience once. Yeah. In their life. So to have that repeatedly. You know, you said it earlier, right? That does something to the human condition. And in your case, something in you held together, something held you together and has provided you the the ability to know and see things in people that they probably don't see in themselves. Yeah. You know, you know, um, th- this is this is when it gets kind of weird. OK, but I, I'm going to tell you. So as far back as I can remember. I have um, always um, had this um, guardian. I mean, literally a guardian. Um, Invisible. Um, (laughs) um, But uh, present. So, so there, there were all of these like, really jacked up situations always around me and and for some reason um, the most extreme negative consequence of those situations I would avoid throughout my whole life um, so for instance there's no reason why I should still be alive uh, based on decisions I've made along the way. Uh, There's no reason why I shouldn't have gone to prison multiple times and potentially for life uh, in my 20s and 30s. Um, There there are just unexplainable, unexplainable um, moments where I was um, saved from complete disaster and destruction. Even now, um, there have been mm-hmm. moments in in my life where, even in recent years, where I should have completely been destroyed, and um, and I've always walked through it a few scrapes. So um, I've got this theory, and. Um, um, 
it's a, it's a it's a weird ass theory, but but I sit around thinking weird ass shit all the time, man. But <laughs> but um um I think um I think I'm here for a reason, and 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 the, and the one thing that that keeps me moving forward. Is that the reason uh, keeps evolving? So I'm always moving forward. So I'm moving through time, um, always fulfilling the reason I'm here. But I've always believed that I'm here for a reason. You know, when I was doing crime, I thought the reason was doing crime effectively. Um, I ultimately end up in in, in ministry religion. I ultimately felt, okay, so I'm supposed to do this effectively. But I've always felt that there was a reason I was doing it, all right? And that reason, it was a compelling, uh, literally a compelling existence that uh, that always uh, exceeded my reach. Hmm. So I was always moving towards it. I'm still, I'm still moving towards it. I just took three months off from, 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 from church. And during that three months, um, uh, my my real intention was to walk away, but that followed um, um, a year of probably the worst year of my whole life was 2017. Um, August 2017 I had the first and only suicidal ideation I've ever had in my life. Whoa. Yeah, man. Um. Second week in August, um, got to a point where I uh, um, we were we were probably ninety days from um, a complete uh, institutional collapse, financial collapse, mm. which would have lost um, church campuses, housing developments, uh, projects, but I think even more so, it wasn't a loss so much. But it was the perp walk. It was the um, the vision of being paraded as a complete failure uh, that brought me to the brink of wanting to off myself. Um, and I was just thinking, you know, that day, I said it doesn't get worse than this. So maybe uh, this is maybe this is the end of my uh, purpose. Yeah. So because remember. A compelling reason always kept me moving forward. Always, yeah. So I uh, uh, I make three calls that day. I, I call a buddy who I know uh, had experienced and survived real crap. All right, so he's my like crap guru. Okay. Um, I call my wife who knows me better than any human being on the face of the earth. Um, who I can always count on for uh, some some rational like dialogue who in turn told me to call my therapist who also knows me well because she's also my two daughters and my wife's therapist so when I go in she's already fully informed mm. as to who I am mm-hmm. so I went to see her and she told me she said, you know Rudy um, I've, I've known you for 10 years and 
you know, you have uh, in your mind always um, um, escaped failure successfully. You have always run from failure successfully. So, so my run from failure has um, uh, has has literally been, um, if I could put a uh, um, a picture on that compelling reason that has always moved me forward, uh, it's always because it's because I've always felt that failure was right behind me, getting ready to apprehend me. So instead of being apprehended, I would move forward towards that purpose. Well, this particular day I felt failure had almost caught me and literally had put its hands on me. And I knew that if failure ever caught me, that would be the end. She told me, you know, you have run successfully from failure your whole life. But today I think you need a perspective change. Why don't you try running towards something instead of away from something? I'm thinking, damn, that makes a lot of sense. All right. <laughs> I mean, if you look if you're running from something, you have to occasionally reference the past, but something behind you, a place you've already gone through. Here I am now, uh thinking that what would it look like to run towards something? So immediately I began to think, I need, a, I need to stop, uh, take a break. And I left church. And, uh, and I didn't know if I was going to make it back to church. But I knew uh, that, that ministry to that point had been um, my way of escaping uh, failure. And uh, so I stopped and I started moving forward through a um, through a series of, of very empty, quiet moments that uh, uh, with no goal in front of me. For the first time really in my in my existence, in my life, have I ever moved forward without something to do in front of me? So for the last three months I've been been moving through uh, life with relative freedom and and two weeks ago um, I came to a point of clarity the clarity is this uh, my time in, in full time church ministry is over um, I had to go back and began to tie up the ends. And um, and in that, leave the, uh, leave the church with one last vision. Um, so that's what I did. I went back two weeks ago. I, uh, um, the folk hadn't seen me in three months. Uh, I acknowledged that the rumor mill had lied to him, that my wife hadn't left me, I wasn't dead, hadn't lost my mind, all right, and wasn't sick unto death, all right. <laughs> Church people will create some shit, you know. <laughs> I said, no, I'm, I'm actually pretty good. Uh, I've been going to brunch on Sunday, you know. I've been hanging out. I've been, I've been living. 
And everybody exhaled. Hey, Rudy, you're back. Come on in. Uh, we're glad you're back. But I knew I was, I came back to leave. Mm-hmm. You know, and, um, but on my way out, I told them we're going to do something like really crazy. We're going to take this whole campus that we've built and turn it into a boarding school for young men who could potentially experience homelessness. So every building that we've built, we're going to make, we're going to direct its purpose to this end. And then when I finish that, I'm gone. What was it like to you to stand in front of those people? It was a, uh, um, you know, probably for the first time in my life, I uh, I had a sense of, of clarity about what I was supposed to do next uh, that I've never experienced before. Wow, something did die. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you, you know, you know. I think what that was, um, in 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 a in a funny sort of way, my my need to succeed. Mm. You know, we you know what drives um, what drives previously traumatized, precocious. Um, discerning uh, oddballs okay is a um, is an innate need for validation that uh, that doesn't necessarily come directly from people but uh, through people not from but through so like for me I'm like you know I've, I've studied and looked at at um, like successful leaders and um and 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 kind of seen their um uh, uh their quirkiness and and their um even their mental health issues um uh, and I've seen like literally myself uh in in the profiles of a lot of these very successful people uh and 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 with with one final sort of uh, idea that damn we're all crazy you know in a real sort of funny sort of way um to the point where uh we are uh, uniquely engaging uh i think i think we're like a sideshow for for the curious <laughs> it's a hell of a thing man sideshow it's a uh you know you know when when i think of uh ministry so for instance my model for ministry was um, 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 the movie The Leap of Faith mm-hmm. Steve Martin mm-hmm. um, I came in ministry in 92 that movie hit about 90 89, 90 and, and I always said in my mind like man if I was going to be a minister it'd be like uh, uh, Jeremiah the, the preacher in that movie. He was like charismatic, had a white, shiny suit, and and hit a town, and the people loved him. All right? 
The difference in the two of us is I would try to uh, uh, I would I would try not to play the folk, you know, for some cash, but really try to like help them. That would be the difference. So when I showed up to church in '92, uh, I literally showed up as, as that Jeremiah, you know, larger than life, uh, wacky, um, uh, magnetic, and and I brought the show. So you know, man, music at, at this place where I, you know where I serve, incredible. The show is phenomenal, you know, because one thing I've never uh, been shy about is you know you know this this aspect of religion is part entertainment you know you just can't can't bore people <laughs> so so yeah so you know but it, it's been it's been interesting man i've been all over the place on this thing but. well it's not the first time you made a transition of one structure for one purpose yeah to a different purpose yeah we had a, I had a borderline bardello um, back in my twenties, my dad and I built a mot- little motel uh, in the neighborhood, inner city, kind of not too far from downtown in Houston. Yeah. Uh, and really, that place was a um, was my dad's vision uh, from my childhood. When I was five years old, he brought a set of blueprints home, put op- open them up on the table, and 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 he told me, he said, "Man, we're gonna make money with this building on other people's pain." And I said, well, that's what he said. Yeah. Yeah. On other people's pain. I said, man, how, how do we do that? He said, well, you know, people, you know, like, like to hook up with, uh, with, with people and have sex. He said, we're going to build a building for sex. And, um, I was five when I was 23, I built a building. We opened it and man, people have a lot of sex. I don't know if you know that. But and they and they pay for it, so we were innkeepers. You know that's why that's how I uh, I explained my, my role my role in this in this thing. It's a we long were, term vision. I mean, yeah. to go from five to twenty three. Yeah. So you, you guys maintained that for a maintained long it. time. Yeah, man. And literally uh, finished college, went into banking, finished my tour tour of duty in banking, came to Houston, started building. And that was one of my, maybe my second project. Mm. Built that thing, man. And, uh, you know, uh, fornication and adultery are two very popular activities. Yeah. And it was very lucrative. Right about that same time, though, uh, crack cocaine was introduced into the uh, society. Um, and, And when crack was introduced, man, it was... The purpose of the place almost flipped. We had more crack smoking than we had sex having, so so it became really a crack motel. Place where people check out. Yeah, all kind of people too. I had bankers, lawyers, professionals, school teachers. You name it. People came in there, and whereas they might have used at one point would come with with someone to have sex with, now. They came with a glass pipe, a copper rod, yeah, and a, and a little little nasty looking piece of of uh, what looked to be like soap. 
and it was crack. What was all this like for you? I'm just, uh, I mean, you were there all the time, I'm assuming. All the time, yeah. What was going through your mind? Well, um, being dissociative helps in, in places like that. I could remove myself from that shit and just kind of like be completely an innkeeper, you know? Um, but mm. I will say there's a residual uh, effect that uh, that literally brings you into the same darkness. So it's like a prison guard. Mm-hmm. You're in prison. Yeah. All right. If you're an, if I if you're an innkeeper, in in a in a in a small close intimate setting like that, you are experiencing everything your clients are experiencing. So Especially yeah. a big intuitive like you. Exactly. So I was in I was in darkness, man. Complete complete darkness. How did it manifest? Um. Uh, risk. Mm. You know, I took I took lots of risk uh, in those days. Um, so you were you were you were kind of dissociating and kind of numbing out from what was going on, and so to feel something, you were taking risk. Oh, taking risk, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd go, uh, I, you know, created a little s- small crime organization. Uh huh. You know, we did stuff. Yeah. Just to feel. Just to feel. So, 23, you built it. 23, I built it. How long did it go? Uh, Till I entered ministry at 36. Yeah, would you, so through this, I I think we probably need to pick up on this thread with your father. Mm -hmm. And could you rewind a bit and say a bit about, you know, from Blueprints? From Blueprints. Yeah. So so my dad was uh, was an interesting guy. That's how I can describe him. Um, so he, so technically orphaned by his mama and daddy and sent, was sent to live with his sister, my aunt, Hattie Mae Allen, hmm. at 12. So, um, um, so probably uh, there, are some, there was some abandonment that I think my dad experienced in that that um that made him look for um a uh, feeling in women so he was good with people like extremely good with people smart guy uh great personality um and his thing was you know just hooking up but um but he was also uh like a kind of educated you know so he had a master's in accounting in accounting isn't that something yeah, yeah. so so he uh, um, he did the, the job that a black professional could do in the 60s he was a school teacher hmm. and he got a master's in accounting and he started a bookkeeping business but he always had this dream of owning this motel of which he literally raised his son to build and run. So so the trade-off for us was I got the freedom to experience entrepreneurship as a hood cat, I mean, as a as a kid from from a uh, um, an urban neighborhood, you know. 
at the same time, I had a, had an opportunity to uh, um, to experience something few of my peers would would be able to experience, and that was uh, starting businesses. So we built that and opened a liquor store and created a daycare center, and I did all this in my twenties. You know, and it was it was fun. You know, and that's that's that was the legit stuff. That's not even mentioning the 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 activities. You got a bandwidth that's pretty admirable. I mean, the amount of things you can do is. Yeah, one of my one of my really close friends, who is uh, um, um, probably the ten smartest people I know, uh, was always fascinated by how broad my uh, mm. uh, my spectrum, my my like my human spectrum. So on my on my spectrum are like lower socioeconomic folk and higher socioeconomic folk and everybody in between. And and I, I relate to all of them in a very personal way because they're my friends. You know, so so that that broad spectrum also uh, translates to my, my typical activities every day. You know, it's like, f- for instance, today, uh, I started out early this morning uh, in a meeting talking about one thing. I ended up uh, with some other folk talking about something else, and now I'm here with you, mm-hmm. cracking my brain open. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's, it's fun to crack your brain open. Oh, this, yes. <laughs> I don't know if it's going to be for your audience, but it's, it's been fun for me. <laughs> it's been really good. That's, man. that's all that matters yeah, is man. right here. You know, yeah. they're, they're like vicariously living or voyeurs. You know, the audience is a voyeur. In this yeah, one. yeah, th- yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's a riot. Yeah. So yeah, you've got a you've got a large bandwidth. So I mean, you were yeah, I, I get it with the opportunities that you were doing to to actually build the structures and give life to these ideas that you and your father were having. So I was sixteen when I finished high school. So I finished high school a year early. And um, uh, May nineteen seventy three. And I immediately went into college. And so I I had this. So I'm a systems guy. Mm, yeah. Okay. I can tell. Yeah, I'm a systems guy. So in high school, I asked a counselor. I found the, the person in authority, the, the boss, to find out what does success mean in this joint? They say success is graduating. How do you graduate? They say, well, you need so many uh, credit hours in high school. I said, I didn't even know that was a credit hour in high school. I thought I had to spend the years. I said, oh no, no, every class is a credit hour. I said, well, how many do I have? They said, well, you have enough to graduate. I said, well, let's graduate. I was 16. <laughs> so I go to college. So I go ask the counselor in college, a little junior college in Dallas, Texas. I said, so what do I need to do to graduate? They said, you need these many credit hours. I said, well, how many can I take a semester? They say you can take up to 21. I said, that's all I gotta do? Take 21 of these hours every semester for three years and I can finish? They said, yeah. So I took 21 hours a semester. Yeah. Full load every semester in college. Summers and full term. That's and, a discipline and a drive. And at 19, I graduated from college. 
And I was high every day. I love weed. I used to smoke weed every day. And I realized later that the weed was uh, slowing down my attention deficit. It was like, damn, I was medicating. I was self-medicating. And, um, and it enabled me to, uh, so 19, I, I'm graduating. That summer I turned 20. Uh, I got a job in a bank in Dallas in a management training program. And all of my colleagues had blue suits and my suit was green. <laughs> they would go to lunch, I'd go smoke weed, all right? I mean, uh, they had Buicks, I had a sports car. I was not a good banker, all right? <laughs> but I learned something, you know? I, yeah. and I, did, I did that corporate thing a couple of years. I said, okay, uh, systems, this ain't the one for me. So I called my dad, I said, hey pops, I said, let's do that deal you wanted to do. Let's build that motel. He said, come on, man. So I sold my house. I bought a house. I was 20. All right. I sold my house, uh, moved to Houston, and went into business. Man, that's, a, that's an incredible drive. So that same drive is the same drive that brought me to that day when failure almost caught me. Yeah. Because Faye had never called me before. And it does. I've escaped every, every situation my entire life. Sometimes narrowly, but always escaped. And your father was um, critical of religion, but in, in particular religious. Religious people. Religious people and pastors. Mm -hmm. He said, we, we don't trust preachers and church people. What do you mean by that? Um, he felt that, uh, that preachers were uh, uh, inconsistent. They were, they were a large part of our clientele uh, at our place of business as, uh, you know, with sex workers. So, um, so that only reinforced my lack of trust for religious professionals. Church people... Uh, there were only a few church people we trusted, and those were uh, the ones we knew really well, like my aunt, mm -hmm. my mama. They were, they were practicing. Uh, they were practitioners who really took it seriously. But other than that, we, we, but he said, but always he he would you know he would cover that statement with, but we don't play with God. Mm. So so. He uh, embedded a deep reverence for uh, for God in his you know in his from his understanding of God uh, for me. So I just associated God with uh, like the religious structure, but being the ultimate boss. Power. Power. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. He respected power. He respected power. He understood power too, though. You know, my dad was a, uh, um, uh, matter of fact, I have an article um, from 1966 where he became the first uh, black Republican uh, employee in Harris County. He was the first black person they hired in 1966. Um, he became a Republican. Uh, because uh, his best friend, John Fantino, uh, had become a Republican a couple of years earlier. And John said, hey, Rudy, 
this line is short. You want to get in it with me. Um, and that's when I learned the short line theory of politics. You know, um, you know, today I can't practice a short line because of my uh, moral convictions. But but for a long time, I was a Republican, too. What's that mean? Um, it means um, um, economics over everything. Mm. The metric is economic, not not morality. See, budgets have a moral uh, budgets are a moral document. Sure, um, but not not if economics trump everything. Yeah, you can you can arrange your budget in a way that's aligned with your morality, with your but if it is bottom line first, right. then your morality goes out the door. Out the door. Yeah. So. So that's what it meant to me for a long time. Uh, I was even a a, precinct, a Republican precinct judge in Houston, in Harris County, when I first moved back. <laughs> really? Short line, man. You've done... <laughs> I'm really excited for all the other things that are going to fall out of this conversation oh, as we go. You know? Short line. <laughs> Bam- you... Bandwidth, man. Yeah, ban- Yeah, you've done a lot. So as you're did nearing, did I tell you I was a musician? No, <laughs> no, but I'm, I'm gonna stop being surprised. You know, Bass you told player. me you told me you sat on a trumpet when you were younger on your uh, my trumpet case. And he's yeah, good memory. Yeah. So I started playing trumpet in the second grade. Mm-hmm. I played all the way through high school. In the sixth grade, I picked up bass. Nice. And and just so happened, electric bass is what I was attracted to, but this school had an upright bass. Mm. So I started playing upright and electric, played through high school, and ultimately majored in music my first semester. Nice. Yeah. My dad told me, he said, hey, I ain't paying for no goddamn music degree. <laughs> <laughs> that was, he said, it was a wrap. I didn't want to go He's to work. He's an accountant. So, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I didn't want to work. Yeah. Because, you know, here's, here's the weird part, man. Um, I've had to reconcile the fact that I have been, I've had a privileged life. Mm. Dude, I have never had an economic, an economic hard day in my life. I live with people who have had economic hard lives. But personally, shit, man, I've, I've had, I had a charmed life. Because my dad became a Republican, let me tell you how this worked. He became a Republican in 66, school teaching, making five grand a year. In 68, one of his buddies in Dallas said, there's a guy named Ross Perot who wants to bootstrap black businesses. So he's going to create a venture fund. All right? A venture capital fund in 1968 for black businesses became a little company called, a a venture capital company called Venture Advisors. My dad, because he was in the short line, got the call to become the director, president of that company. So we moved from Houston to Dallas in 1969, all right, for him to lead this little company, Venture Advisors, which was a venture capital fund bootstrapped by Ross Perot, EDS, Electronic Data Systems, back in the day, early computing guy. Mm. and another computing maverick named Sam Wiley. Those guys came together, put their money together, 
hired my dad. My dad runs a venture capital fund in 1969. I'm 12 years old. We moved from the hood in Houston, Texas to a high-rise apartment in Dallas, Texas. And I'm the only black kid in the apartment. I go to a junior high school, eighth grade. I'm the only black kid in 1969 in a school with a thousand white kids, mostly from from blue collar families. What did they think about you? Oh, they hated my guts. What did you think about them? It was my first encounter with white folk. Yeah. It was my first encounter. Well, that's a really shitty encounter. It was a shitty encounter, man. Yeah. So, so my first encounter was the, as the only black student in a school, 1969, one year post, 1968. 68 was my last year drinking from a, a separate water fountain. All right. 69, yeah. I'm in Dallas, Texas. And, and these people um, call me a nigga every day. Every day. So, so much so, um, two years, I, uh, um, I spent two years in, in complete, uh, isolation. Around a bunch of people. Eighth and ninth grade. Yeah. Around a thousand people. Yeah. Hey man, a thousand people. I'm in complete isolation. At lunchtime, I had a table to myself. I, no, no one ever ate lunch with me. On the bus, I was always on a seat by myself. In class, nobody ever sat next to me for two years. It's amazing time. Earned, secure. Earned, secure. Yeah. Amazing time. My mom and dad would ask me, he said, uh, so like in the early days, because I'd come home and cry. Um, so, man, let's get you out of the school. And my, my response was always the same. I'm 13. I tell them, if I run now, I run forever. <laughs> that, was my, that was my mantra. If I run now, I run forever. Well, how did you talk to yourself about what was going on? How did you make sense of it? Um... That's when I started getting high. Yeah. Yeah. I had a buddy. I met a met a met a met a kid. He's a couple of years older than me. He and his sister became my best friends. And um they had access to weed, man. And and their mom had an open bar. And and that's when I learned to to, to medicate all them feelings. It worked out really well. You've got an interesting take on really well. Yeah. What do you mean when you say really well? Well, um, that was a uh, formula for uh, some pretty intense depression that I never felt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's Prozac, man. Yeah. Shit, I mean, I didn't know what Prozac was, so, but I could find some weed. Then I, I could find some Bacardi, mm -hmm. you know, and um, and I was pretty much self-managed as a teenager. 
uh, my parents didn't manage me. Yeah, you had this really fascinating collision of trauma and drive and autonomy and yep. motivation and dissociative, you know, techniques that were unconscious, you mm -hmm. know. Wow. Complex cat, man. Complex, yeah. That's why I'm still alive. Yeah. Because um, if I was me now, I wouldn't be here. I mean, I'm so, so my collision with, with an end was uh, deferred because of my encounter with Christ. I would be dead, long time dead by now, had I not encountered um, Jesus. That's something. So, so my encounter with Jesus was was a pretty phenomenal one, and um, so, so, so I, I'm just gonna kind of move forward. No, that's yeah, move forward. I, I, you were saying Jesus, and I was thinking, yeah, and it's not that dude that has a beard that's not as cool as yours is. Yeah. But and that's we gotta let's get into it. Yeah. So, so I, um, so I'm, I've built a motel. I'm running a crazy business. I'm living on an absolute edge. And I meet a woman who, um, at a funeral, who ultimately became my wife. Uh, when I met her, um, what what attracted me to her was. Um, she had the, the brightest internal light that I'd ever seen in anybody. And being a discerner. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. yeah. She, I said, like, wow, this lady really has a bright light. And I was uh, hella attracted to the light. So I meet her right after this funeral. Uh, she was selling insurance. Um, and... And she saw me as a prospect, an insurance prospect. Mm. And we traded a date for an insurance presentation. <laughs> hustling. And, hustling, yeah, man. <laughs> but I, I, wanted to, I wanted to know more about that light. Yeah. Crazy thing happened. Uh, I, I immediately, I immediately, um, we dated for about three months. And... And I immediately felt uh, the need to protect her. So, uh, so much so that the voice, so there's, there's always been this voice uh, that would, that would give me um, sort of instruction. The voice said, don't do anything that would cause this person to not trust you. Uh, which meant I had to leave her alone because I didn't know how to not do something that would cause her to not trust me. So I left her alone. Well, I tell you, I leave her alone and, well, this is how it happened. We're dating three, for three months. That's lunch and dinner. Uh, one night, I knew that I was not supposed to see her again. So that night, we kissed and departed. We kissed and parted. She went her way, I went mine. The next day, unlike any day prior, any week prior, in those three months, the next day, neither one of us called each other. And that was it. 
I never expected to see Juanita again. Um, during that year, you know, I would, you know, I'm, I'm back into my life. But I would think about her occasionally. At the end of that year, the voice said, call her. I called her, invited her out to lunch. Three months later, we were married. <laughs> the deal was, I would go to church with her. She was a church girl. She joined me in my life. She joined me in darkness. But she brought this like lantern into my damn darkness. So I started going to church with her. And and I went to the, this one particular church we went to. And it was the only church that, uh, that I really felt comfortable in. Because the pastor was a business guy. And he would always talk business. His sermons would always intersect with economy and 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 struggle and reality. And he would always give these great illustrations that were always couched in something that I, I could relate to. And uh, so as a non-believer, I sat on the pew for five years. The whole time thinking, man, these people full of shit. <laughs> And I must really like this woman. <laughs> <And I> really, <laughs> but uh, but I sat there, man, and and in the fifth year, a guy invited me to a like a one-on-one Bible study. Uh, his name was Willie Lane, and man, Willie knew his Bible backwards and forwards, and uh, and I had questions, and Willie answered my questions, and but what really Willie really did was uh, this is this was the phenomenal part. Willie showed me. Um, the love in the text. He showed me that this was a text about love. So Willie focused on all of the words in red. Uh, all of the, like in his Bible, they were like uh, the words that Jesus spoke were in red. So he said, man, this, this guy is always talking about love. So I'm not in a very loving world during this whole time. I'm mm -hmm. still running a crazy business. I remember one day though coming home, which at, in those days when Eden and I lived at the uh, at the at the motel. I get out of my car, I got a Mercedes, all right. I get out of my Benz, and one of my boys who like grew up with me, five years old. That's how we do it in the streets. You bring your people with you. Mm. Yeah, you don't you don't recruit no new people. You bring your people with you. So uh, Danny came up with me. We met in kindergarten, all right, five years old. Danny was my right hand man, you know. All my all my partners, we came up together, all right. Which meant that was a bond there, that that meant you know ain't nobody snitching in this 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 group here, you know. So Danny, um, I get out of the car and Danny looked at me and said, "Man, what happened to you today?" And I'm thinking, <laughs> "Damn, what do you see?" I knew what had happened. I didn't think anybody could see it. Danny saw immediately that something that day had changed in my life, and it had. That was the first day, man, I started feeling like, what am I doing? This is, I don't know. And I, and I really, really, I got, um, it got kind of weird for me because all the shit I'd been doing, I no longer 
felt that I should be doing it. So in that year, I became a Christian. What were your friends thinking? That I was losing my mind. My dad did too. Because at the, at the end of that year, and I became a Christian, 1990, um, I told him, I said, Pop, I can't take the money no more. He said, what? You know, he said, what you, what you mean you can't <laughs> what you mean you can't take the money no more? I said, man, this money got blood on it. I can't take it no more. I said, I got to find a new way to make a living. He said, good luck with that. And I stopped taking the money. Kept running the business. Stopped taking the money. So I had to almost immediately find a, a new way to, to, to live, generate income. Um, it was hard. Um, but in that, in that, in that same year in that next year, uh, like 91, um, I accepted a, what I thought was a, a call to ministry. I didn't know what it meant. I just knew that I've been running a whorehouse and now man, I got to do something to help people. So I ended up, you know, uh, my, the pastor of that church, um, gave Juanita and I the keys to a, dilapidated church building in downtown Houston and said, Hey man, go see, let's see what we can do down there. And he gave me some instruction and met with me every week and taught me how to be a pastor. Was it hard? No, man, it was easy. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you know, um, um, I lead from the middle of the room. It's a leadership style. So, uh, a lot of people that do what I do lead from the front of the room. You know, they use their oratory skills um, to um, to move the crowd. I use touch. So in the middle of the room, I lead like a gang leader. Uh, gang leaders don't lead from front of the rooms. Gang gang leaders lead from literally the the center because. Uh, because in, in that world, leadership is about proximity. And the closer people feel they are to you, uh, the more committed they are to your, your vision. You know? Um, but that's how it is in the real world. You know, white people are different, though. I, you, I want you to know that. <laughs> Leading white people is very different. I want to know more about that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, white people are very compliant. Uh-huh. You know? Uh, that's, that's why we see so much madness right now is because they are literally complying to a uh, to an order, you know, to, to a perceived order. Okay, this must be the way things should be going. So let's go in this direction. Um, you can't lead black people like that. You can lead educated, professional black people like that because they're, of their, uh, their time and assimilation. Well, they're in the system, right? They're in the system. Yeah. But for the rest of the world, uh, uh, trust is a key factor. Yeah. White people don't have to trust their leader to follow their leader. Black people do. Yeah, outside the system. Outside right? the you system. gotta, yeah. But it's a good perspective too. That's the one, those are the folks that can critique yeah. and challenge the system. Yeah. Yeah, so, so I leave from the middle of the room and that's literally... All I did was took my previous life, um, transitioned it to uh, ministry, and kept living literally uh, in the same manner 
but with a different ethos. Mm-hmm. I get that. A different, a different like vision in front of me. Mm-hmm. You know, so the vision wasn't stacking paper, making money. The vision was helping people. That matter of fact, that was the prayer my wife prayed for me for five years. God, show Rudy the, the deal you have for him. So my deal moved from making money to helping people. That's my deal today. That's why when I think about something, if if I'm thinking about it strictly from a uh, self-advantaged, a self-advantage, that deal ain't going nowhere. But if I can think about that same deal in terms of how it's going to help somebody, that deal goes off the screen. So start at the beginning of your church life. What? So you open the doors. Open the doors. And what happens? People came in. But I opened the doors with a hook. All right? So in, in, in music, I'm a music guy, all right? And, and the hook is what people remember in a song. It's that, it's that one word, that one sentence, that whenever they think of that song, that, that, that one thing comes. So, so my hook was like authenticity. So I, I come through the door. I don't come shiny. I come like completely contrarian, basic as you can get. I wore tennis shoes, jeans, T-shirt, baseball cap every day. And in 1992, uh, that was very contrarian for, uh, mm-hmm. uh, for, for religion, for black religion. I do that. Second thing I do is prioritize the lowest socioeconomic station in that, in that sector. And that, in this particular case, it was the homeless. So we prioritized the homeless, prioritized the lowest socioeconomic, down literally, um, uh, took the shine off of, of all the material stuff. I even drove, I got rid of my bins, got a Jeep, all right, started rolling, you know, real basic life. Um, and just took a very low profile. But uh, but the profile began to uh, uh, resonate with people who had checked out of organized religion. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, we started serving a hot meal to homeless people. And, um, and a writer for the Houston Chronicle in uh, January 1993, like four months later, four months after our start, picked up that uh, that article, I mean, that, that story, and, and, and gave us a front page byline, downtown church feeds the homeless. It rolls out and our doors fell off the hinges the next year, over the next year. All these people who felt the church should be doing something, doing something instead of just being in a community, uh, started coming our way, and um, and that launched a um, really a magical experience for all of us. We just started fellowshipping with people we never would have encountered. Yeah, and people that wouldn't encounter each other. Wouldn't have been That's the theme I, I noticed through the book. You kept referencing back to that inclusivity, but in the bandwidth, you know, that there are the suits, 
Mm-hmm. They were all there there. are those who uh, can't bathe. Right. And everybody's hanging out together. Hanging out together. The key is, so I was successful any given Sunday if I got those two folk to share the same pew. Mm-hmm. And this was, your, you were you were conscious of this. You were going very, at this. Very conscious of it. Yeah. And it was non-negotiable. So, so here's the deal. We've had 23,000 people join the church over these years. And, and, and at any point, if I had ever really had conformed to a, um, to a more normative expectation, mm. uh, I could be at 40,000 people in six locations. And, you know, or, or I could be at, 35,000 people in one building. All right. If I ever had ever conformed to uh, the expectation, uh, and the expectation was always, but what about us? That's what the enfranchised thinks, always. What about me? And I would always say, what about you? It's not about you. It's about, it's about that person right there who uh, can't do for themselves. That was the, you know, if it was a gay person, it was a person, you know, uh, experiencing economic deprivation. If it was a person with HIV, if it was a person, you know, just whoever that person, you know, that found themselves in the margins, that's who I would prioritize. And enfranchised people hate that shit. <laughs> they hate it. How do you, I, I guess with that kind of growth, how do you avoid the institutional component just naturally happening? What you have to guard that, guard you against have, it. You right? have to guard it. You have to guard it literally uh, with your um, with your life, and and you have to be very intentional about what uh, does and does not work. Uh, so, for instance, um, over these years. Let's say we, we, we've been able to build maybe 30 million in, in buildings, housing for previously homeless people, clinics, f- soup kitchens, uh, schools, all, all this downtown. But, but, the, but the key is I've never negotiated who the priority was. If I'd ever negotiated who the priority was, um, I would have been able to um, um, have, let's say, a bigger barn, um, <laughs> you know, more people. Yeah. Butts in the seats. Butts in the seats. So, and that's been the sacrifice. Like right now, it's, it's hard right now. Yeah. You know, the church is hard. It's very hard. I want to move back for a second because I want to get into that because yeah. that sounds a little bit like right in line with your thesis. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing that I think we need to to tend to, and I gotta look this up. I was I was crying this morning reading your book. Okay. Uh, a couple of times you you'd written, um, but there's one story that I I don't know. It just moved me. Stan. Mm-hmm. Oh, Stan, man. Stan. Stan. <laughs> Stan. It's crazy. So, so Stan 
and I, um, I meet Stan on the steps at the church. And um, crazy thing. So Stan, I tell Stan, I look at him, okay? And I have this instant knowing. But the one thing I knew immediately about Stan is that he had an instant knowing also. Hmm. Most discerning cat I've ever met besides me. <laughs> the craziest thing. I, I meet Stan and I ease up on him and I tell him, I say, man, you have immense potential. Why are you here? He was in our soup line getting a meal. And this wasn't the day because you referenced the day that he was, you know, woke up and somebody said something about the rockets. And then and then he's, he comes and somebody says, oh, yeah, there's, there's church down there and I want to go uh, mm-hmm. take that's it to get a meal. That's how you found us. So you meet Stan. I yeah. meet Stan, yeah. So Stan was, uh, as, they, as you say in the books, on the slabs. On the slabs. He was, that's where he was sleeping. Yeah. And uh, But I meet this guy and I'm thinking, what is, what is this cat doing? So I meet him and... Uh, and I just, you know, I'm just drawn to this guy, man. Mm. And and occasionally I, I was drawn to people. Um, some of them I, I wrote about. Yeah. Um, and I tell him, I said, Stan, you 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 have immense potential. And he and he stopped me. And he said, What's immense? And I tell him what immense is. And he looked at me with this real curious look. And, and he went away. He came back. And then one day, random, I bump into him in DPS. We were getting our license renewed. And he was there looking like rough. And he was smoking crack, all right? And I invite him back. I said, man, come on back and hang out with me. He did. We started hanging out. Stan decided to get sober. Get sober, man. As he as he's getting as he's getting sober, all right. He's in like year one, two of the whole recovery process from crack cocaine. Um, I give Stan a job. Stan becomes our first nonprofit employee, um, running the HIV component in our outreach. Which meant Stan's job was to get first of all uh, phlebotomy testing, mm-hmm. uh, where you can draw blood um, for HIV test back in the day when you had to draw blood for HIV test. And what year was this? Uh, 94. Yeah. yeah. 94, 95. Um, and, and, and the guy had such amazing skills with people that he was testing a thousand people a month via blood st- needle stick. Everywhere, bars, bathhouses, you name it. Stan would go, and uh, and Stan was an, um, has just, but I didn't know that Stan didn't know how to read. So when Stan finally told me, man, I don't know how to read. We we taught Stan how to read, and then Stan just said, you know, I need to get a GED. Stan got a GED, and then Stan went to college. And Stan met a woman in college, and he married that woman. And then Stan came to me one day and said, uh, "Big brother, I'm getting ready to start my own nonprofit." And that was just a few years later. Now, Stan started his own nonprofit, 
and he'd watched us and and learn learn the game and Stan built his first apartment building for people with AIDS and then Stan built his second apartment building for people with AIDS and Stan runs an amazing agency today a caring safe place but because of the tension between friends who are leaders Stan had to go away but I always miss Stan and and last week um, Stan and I met in Nashville hung out the entire day for his birthday and um, and recommitted our friendship um, he's an amazing cat what a story here's a picture of us that's in Nashville at the Pancake House with my book agent. That's wild. That just happened last week. Last week. Yeah. <laughs> Twenty five years later. <clears throat> that's my brother. Yeah. From another mother. How lucky for you both that you got to reconnect. Yeah. You don't get to do that often. Yeah. So so that hits on a little bit of something I think for anybody listening to kind of hear the nature of what you're talking about when you're talking about your church. Yeah. Because it, you know, it's it's grown. I mean, when in the book you were talking about having 9,000 members and you just said something like 20 Which one is 3,000 have joined? Yeah. Yeah. But I run people off. <laughs> no way. I do. What 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 do you think uh I run people off. <laughs> so, but you know, <clears throat> when things are not when there's not enough tension in the atmosphere, I do shit. Mhm. Cause I need tension, so so here we go. Early on, I created tension by by being extremely casual in my attire. All right, that stopped moving. I mean, that stopped being. Uh, you gotta a keep thing. You gotta keep. You gotta keep putting the <laughs> putting the, the bar up, you know. And so I I plaited my I grew a beard like yours, like a full kind of bushy. And then one day, uh, I was on the beach. Like in in near South America, and and um, a Jamaican lady said, "Hey, um, let me plait your beard." I'm saying she, I saw she was doing the little girl's hair, so I said, "Okay, cool." So she plaited my beard and put put it into seven braids and put beads on it, and I and I realized immediately that that really disturbed people. <laughs> All right, <laughs> I say what a beard can disturb you. So I wore it back to the States and I reduced it to three and I just started wearing a beard braided into three braids. And I said, man, people really don't like this shit. And then the beard stopped working and I had to pierce my nose. (laughs) (laughs) I pierced my nose last year. Yeah. Yeah. I relate with that a lot. And the ear. Yeah. And I'm thinking, and it's kind of like people kind of, well, let me say a certain demographic. If you're under forty, it doesn't really bother you. Yeah. If you're over forty, it disturbs the hell out of you. What do you think it is about you and your desire to disturb? To disturb. Well, I think early on, uh, my my mentor, uh, the pastor of that church, mm-hmm. Kirby John Caldwell, is his name. 
he told me one thing that really stuck with me. He said, man, we got one job. And that's to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. That's our job. He said, that's what Jesus did. Comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. So my whole ministry, bro, has been, shit, disturbing people and comforting people. And sometimes I disturb the wrong, the people who I should be comforting sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, which is, it's not, it's not a good science. Right. I, uh, it really is. <laughs> it's not exact. It's, not it's exact. messy. It's messy. <laughs> I end up running people off that really I should have held on to, mm-hmm. you know, that's what I'm, that's the season I'm in right now. I'm the season I'm in right now is I'm learning how to be a friend because I've been a constituent maker for most of my adult life. Now I'm working on friendship. That's interesting because it just seems like you've been creating love and relationship through this church and through your work as a minister from 34 on. I'm dissociative, man. Yeah. So, so I'm like Teflon. And um, and I move on easily. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying not to move on easily anymore. That's what Stan is teaching. I'm me. glad Stan came back to your life. Yeah, he's teaching me that. He he confronts the hell out of me. You know, tells me that I'm not his damn daddy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, man, I'm not your daddy. Yeah. I'm your friend. Some hardship, man. Yeah. You know, so when you um you spend two years alone at thirteen, you um you develop this um this um hard inner shell that looks soft on the outside. Cause you wanna, you know, you wanna you wanna appear human. But you know, on the inside, you better have something there that keeps you from going completely crazy because you're by yourself. So I, um, um, I imagined love. When you were 13? Mm-hmm. I imagined, I imagined what it would be to be, what it would be like to be loved. What did it look like? Juanita. That's why when I met her, I recognized it. Wow. Yeah. She told me that. that I um, was lovable. She tells me every day, I'm here for you.
I think the uh, goal in life should be to have more than one person being here for you. That's what friendship is. That's what I'm learning. You want a few people to be here for you. You know, that's what that's what happened to me when my when my father died. I always felt he was there for me. So him and Juanita. So when he died, I felt the only person besides Juanita who would come and get me had died. Um, it's taken me a long time to reconcile the fact that uh, I need people in my life. I don't need constituents. That's the... Uh, That was the big revelation that I came to as I uh, prepared to return to work two Sundays ago. That I have been in constituent making for 26 years. Mm. Caring for the poor and constituent making. This friendship shit has worked though, man. <laughs> it's work man yeah it is you gotta be vulnerable yeah um, relatively transparent you gotta uh, you gotta be available present all, all of that is uh, all of that's work it's easy to build buildings Serve the serve the needy. Um, pay some people, you know, to hang out with you. That's what you call staff. Mm. Um, it's it's harder to create lasting friendships. So I'm working on that. I try to steer people into talking about that. We want to talk about our romantic stuff and our job stuff. I notice in this office, friendship gets neglected a lot. Oh, yeah. Friendship is work. Yeah. Romantic shit and job shit. That's the, that's the easy stuff. Friendship. Friendship requires a sacrifice. Mm-hmm. People aren't willing to sacrifice. Mm-hmm. No, sir. It's so interesting to me that you're. One thing we didn't touch on is that the bordello turned into a drug Drug rehab. Mm -hmm. And in the moment, that really marks a profound shift for you. Mm -hmm. And you're there. I'm catching you in the middle of a another shift where you're talking about a structural change. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the change in structure really marks a profound shift in your own life. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody likes change but a wet baby. Yeah. And um and I understand that more intimately now. 
Well, um, I want to be able to close this out. What's left hanging? What are we leaving? Uh, everything. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot in there. Yeah, you leave everything hanging. That's the... Uh, so, so something I'm learning from Jesus um, is he told his folk my time for departure is at hand. Uh, they were saying, but dude, we got work to do. We got to finish taking over this kingdom shit and being in charge. All right. <laughs> and he said oh, man so um, I'm gonna um, I'm gonna ignite something that's gonna kind of move that timeline forward and uh, and then he left So in my faith tradition, um, that departure was um, profound in that there was something that actually was supposed to happen after his departure that could only have happened if he had departed. Mm -hmm. And that's what I know. There's something else supposed to happen at St. John's in downtown Houston. That won't be my doing. I've done what I was supposed to do. What will I do next? I don't really know. But uh, it's going to be fun. Well, no matter what you're doing, I think I, uh, I'd i like to go have a Sunday brunch with you. Yeah, that'd be good. Man. <laughs> that brunch, man, I, that was an invention that happened while I was in church. I like that <laughs> shit, man. You didn't even know it existed. Dude. <laughs> I'm thinking I wake up I've been waking up for three months thinking so baby where are we going to eat today what are we going to do wow weather's nice let's ride our bikes you know and that's what the church has failed to uh, uh, just really failed to honor is how much we're asking of people to come into a room on Sunday morning mm -hmm. typically the only day that they really have to, to chill and rest and to under-deliver in that moment, something that could be profoundly life-changing is could be a, a hell of disappointment. Mm -hmm. People ain't wasting their time. No way. Especially my younger colleagues. Mm -hmm. No. They're saying, if you can't deliver something meaningful that makes sense and and has merit merit in broader society. I'm going to eat pancakes <laughs> with blueberries. Blueberries with blueberries. <laughs> That's right, fancy ones. <laughs> fancy ones. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I've been scared. I'm not scared anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh. I really 
I'm looking at the future right now with great anticipation. I'm so grateful for you coming out and talking to me today. Hey, man, it's good hanging out with you. You too. Yeah. That's my story. I'm sticking to it, man. <laughs>